0: Take your Bibles, if you would, turn along with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I love bridges. Bridges are cool. Bridges get you from one place to another pretty easily compared to not having bridges. Bridges can be beautiful. The Golden Gate Bridge. I would argue one of the most beautiful bridges in all the world. The Brooklyn Bridge. Pretty respectable. The bridge I remember first, growing up, was a bridge that took me to my grandmother's house. And it went over some train tracks. But this wasn't a bridge that tourists would travel to to take a look at. This was a wooden bridge. It was a single-lane bridge. And it curved as it went over the top of the train tracks. And it curved so much that when you were in your vehicle, you couldn't tell if there was another car coming your way, and it's one lane. So what you did was you gave a couple of good beeps on your horn, Let, if anybody's on the other side, know that you're coming, and you just hope that they didn't honk their horn at the exact same time that you did. That bridge, as crude as it was, still accomplished its purpose. It got you from one side to the other without running into a train. Well, we're going to see the Apostle Paul constructing a kind of bridge today in this continuation of the introduction to the book of Romans. Paul is seeking to build a relational bridge to the Romans. A bridge of relationship that would span the geographical and relational distances that currently existed between his readers and himself. As Paul writes to the Christians in Rome probably writing from Corinth around 57 AD he does so knowing that he faces a significant challenge Paul had never been to Rome he had no hand whatsoever in planting the churches there he had never met most of the Christians who lived there he didn't know them and they didn't know him to make matters worse, Paul knew that among the Romans there were some who thought that Paul's preaching and his practices weren't exactly orthodox. That there were some who thought his gospel and his teachings were novel. That they represented a departure from the truth of the Old Testament. Paul is writing to them, in part, to lay out the fullness of his gospel. He is writing to systematically lay out the gospel that he preaches and in so doing, allay any concerns that his message differed from that of the other apostles or differed from that of the Old Testament in any way. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul quotes from the Old Testament a total of 61 times. He quotes from Genesis five times, from Exodus four times, from Leviticus twice, from Deuteronomy five times, 1 Kings twice, Psalms 15 times, Proverbs twice, Isaiah 19 times, Ezekiel once, Hosea twice, Joel once, Nahum once, Habakkuk once, and Malachi once. Paul wants them to know that his message, his gospel, is thoroughly biblical and thoroughly apostolic. So as Paul writes, he knows he has to try to establish a connection with his readers. He has to build a bridge that will span the gulf of miles and misunderstanding and mistrust that have separated them up to this point. He seeks to build this bridge by showing them his genuine love and heart of concern for them and by communicating his desire to see them and to be with them face to face. Paul is seeking to do just this in this expanded introduction of verses 8 through 15. So let me read it for us this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, as the Apostle Paul continues. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you once again for giving us your truth, for not leaving us in the darkness, but sharing with us the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect sacrifice for our sins, for being to us that bridge that spanned the gulf that existed between a holy God and sinful humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way for us to be reconciled to God and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, show us this morning what you have for us, how you want us to grow and grow in faith, grow in understanding, and grow in maturity. Make us a church, Lord, that is growing in maturity through the means that you have appointed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul continues to introduce himself to these Roman Christians who he has not met, he shares with them a bit of his heart. He shares with them his deep desire to be with them in person so that they can all enjoy gospel-centered fellowship together. And as he does this, we're going to see, I believe, three marks of a healthy gospel-centered community. Three things Paul wants to see happen among the Romans and their gospel communities there. And I think three marks of what it looks like to be a healthy gospel-centered church. The first mark is a healthy gospel-centered community is marked by gospel gratitude for God's work in others verse 8 God's work in others gratitude for God's work in others this section verses 8 through 15 that i just read are an expansion of the introduction that paul began in verse 1 verses 1 through 17 form what is this part of all typical ancient letters known as an epistolary opening Where the author introduces himself, he acknowledges his recipients, and perhaps shares a bit of the purpose of his writing. Having introduced himself and identified his readers in verses 1 through 7, Paul now, in verses 8 through 15, begins to share more of his heart with them. He wants these Christians in Rome to know how much he longs to see them, to meet them, to greet them in person, to see them face to face, to be with them and enjoy true Christian fellowship together. Paul begins in verse 8 by saying first, or firstly, or first of all. Now, Paul will not get around to saying secondly. We do that sometimes, or we get confused and we say first of all, and B, and thirdly. Well, I don't think Paul's confused. But I do think he's trying to communicate something here. He's communicating the importance of what he's about to share with them. That before he says anything else, he wants them to know this. Before he goes any further in, the, in a, accomplishing the purposes of this letter, he wants them to be settled in their knowledge of this fact. That he is grateful for them. That he's grateful for God's work in them that he's grateful for the testimony of faith that has gone out into all the world because of them. This is what Paul is grateful for. This is what Paul gives thanks for. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. The first thing Paul wanted them to know is that he's thankful for them. Now, it's important to see that this thanksgiving, this gratitude that the Apostle Paul has, is entirely gospel-centered and gospel-fueled. It is a gospel-centered and gospel-fueled gratitude. Paul says, I thank my God. This is very personal language. He doesn't say, I thank the God of heaven, which would be appropriate and true. He says, I thank my God. The God who is mine. The God who I love and serve. The God with whom I have a personal, intimate relationship with. The God who has saved him from certain judgment. The God who has called him into service as an apostle. The God who supplies all his needs according to his riches and glory. It is only the gospel that makes it possible for sinners to to go from being the enemies of God to being the friends of God so that we may call on God as my God. Do you think of God in those terms? Is God your God? Can you say that God is my God? Do you have that personal, intimate relationship with Him? Do you know that you have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, so that you can genuinely cry out, without fear of lightning striking you, that God is my God. I hope that you do have that confidence and hope this morning, and if you don't, then trust in Jesus Christ, and God can be your God too. God is the God who is for me. He is my God. Not only that, but notice that this thanksgiving to God is offered up through Jesus Christ. Now this is the language of mediation. Jesus Christ is the mediator. Jesus Christ is Himself the bridge between sinful mankind and a holy God. Jesus Christ is the bridge who has spanned that gulf that we never could with innumerable good works with a life where the good outweighed the bad. It was never going to span that gap that existed between us and a holy God. But Jesus Christ did what we could never do through His sinless life and His atoning death on the cross. Jesus serves as the bridge between God and man. Jesus serves as the conduit, the medium, the mediator for all of our thanksgiving and praise now. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through Him, Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And we do it all through Jesus Christ, our mediator. Jesus' sinless life and death as a substitutionary sacrifice have made our thanksgiving to God both possible and acceptable in God's sight. So this thanksgiving is gospel-centered and it is gospel-fueled. It is offered to God with whom we have personal and intimate relationship. And it is offered through Jesus Christ who has made this relationship possible and who has made our thanksgiving both acceptable and possible. Paul was offering thanksgiving for all these Roman Christians, both Gentile Christians who were in the majority in terms of numbers, and Jewish Christians who were in the minority there in Rome. He gives thanks for all of them. Paul is thankful for all of them. But why? Why is Paul thankful for them? Well, the reason for Paul's thanksgiving is that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, there's a bit of hyperbole there. When Paul talks about the whole world, he means the whole known world, the whole world commonly known to him. The Roman Empire, of which Rome was the center. Rome was the most important city in the Roman world. Rome was the seat of government for the entire empire. And the idea of having a growing and thriving group of Christians living in Rome in these churches was an encouragement beyond belief to Christians living everywhere else. To think that they had brothers and sisters in Christ living out their Christian lives right under the nose of Nero, right there in Rome, was an encouragement to Christians living throughout the Roman Empire. Christianity had taken root and was flourishing in the seat of Roman government. And this would have been a great encouragement indeed to Christians elsewhere. Philippians 4.22, written a few years later than the book of Romans, it even indicates there that there were some even among Caesar's household who had believed. Philippians 4.22 says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Ha! We've got Christians right here in Caesar's household. And they send their greetings to you. What an encouragement that those who worked for Caesar, either in an administrative role or in some domestic responsibility, were Christians and were living out their Christian lives right under Nero's nose. Their faith was a source of encouragement to all Christians living throughout the Roman Empire. Now one of the hallmarks then of a healthy gospel-centered community is gratitude for God's work in others. Paul doesn't begin with thanksgiving for his own gifts, his own talents, his own intellect, his own abilities or accomplishments. He begins with God-centered, Christ-mediated thanksgiving and gratitude for his gracious work in the lives of the inhabitants of Rome. Despite Rome's great power, despite Rome's insistence upon emperor worship, God had gloriously saved these Roman Christians out of darkness and delivered them into the light of Jesus Christ. And for that, Paul was grateful. And that's where he begins. That's where he begins with relationship, with thanksgiving for what God has done in the lives of these Roman Christians the foundation of all true community must be gratitude for one another. Thankfulness, genuine thanksgiving for God's work of redemption in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Gratitude for God's gracious work in their lives. Giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ for the gospel transformation that we see in them. Giving thanks to God that God has put these Christians in our lives and that therefore there must be a redemptive reason for their presence among us. To live in true Christian community for sure can be difficult. There are some people that are just hard for us. Christians will sometimes hurt us. They will offend us. They will even sin against us or just be annoying to us. There's an old saying that goes like this, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) And there's so much truth to that, isn't there? Sadly, if we're honest. But true Christian community is built on gospel gratitude for one another and for God's work in one another. Gratitude for the gospel in our own life, gratitude for the gospel's work in others' lives. Sure, that brother or sister in Christ might be hard to love, might be annoying, but just think what they might be like if they didn't know Christ. There's reason for Thanksgiving. Could be a lot worse. Sure, Christians will sometimes sin against us and hurt us, and I don't want to minimize that. But the key to building genuine Christian community is not to fixate on those sins and hurts, but to focus on the gospel truth that God is at work in our lives, in their lives, and that that work has begun in them and in us will one day be perfected, and that God is even using these hurts And yes, even these sins against each other to sharpen us, to grow us, to make us more dependent on Him. And so there's always reason to give thanks. We can give thanks that God is at work among us. And true Christian community is built on such gospel-centered, gospel-fueled gratitude, believing that God is at work through His gospel, not only in my life, but in the lives of all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's always reason for gratitude. Secondly, a second mark of a healthy, gospel-centered church is it's a place where gospel encouragements are both given and received, verses 9 through 12. Gospel encouragements are both given and received. Paul is Continuing here and expanding upon his prayer and thanksgiving for the faith of these Roman Christians. Verse 9, he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul calls on God as his witness. He calls on God to witness to the truth of what he's saying, of how much he cares for these Christians and how much he prays for them. This God who serves as Paul's witness is the one who Paul serves in his spirit. that is with his innermost being, his inner man, He serves the Lord, who is serving as His witness. Paul's service to God and his service is in the sphere of the gospel. That's how God that's how Paul serves the Lord is through the gospel. The gospel here is described as the gospel of His Son. The gospel of God's Son. In verse 1, Paul referred to the gospel as the gospel of God. Here it is the gospel of His Son. The good news of the gospel is that God's Son, Jesus Christ, has come to die for sinners and rise again. Already in just nine verses we've learned that the gospel is the good news from God about His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was foretold in the Old Testament, who was born of a kingly line of David and was appointed to the position of Son of God with power at God's right hand by resurrection from the dead. Already, in just these few verses, Paul has revealed much about the gospel of Christ. And it is this God who is the author of the gospel who serves as the witness to how unceasingly Paul mentions these Roman Christians in his prayers. Paul, in calling on God as witness, is seeking to underscore the truthfulness and the genuineness of his care and concern for these Roman Christians. Care and concern that is expressed through his ongoing, unrelenting prayers for them. In these prayers for them, Paul, no doubt, prayed for their well-being. He prayed for their growth and maturity. He prayed for their protection from spiritual dangers, for their fruitfulness. He prayed for their Christian unity and so on, no doubt. But the prayer that Paul explicitly mentions here is that he would be with them. He says, I pray unceasingly for you, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul really, really, really wants to get to Rome. He really wants to see them. He really wants to be with them. And Paul's great desire to see them and be with them and visit them is seen in his unceasing prayers to that end. But why does Paul want to go to Rome so badly? Why does he want to see them so intently? Verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Paul longs to see them. But not just so that they can get to know each other and put a face with a name but so that he may impart some spiritual gift to them that they may be established. Now what does it mean? Paul longs to go to Rome to see these Christians and be with them so that he can impart this spiritual gift, some spiritual gift. What is the spiritual gift? Well, we know in other places when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he's talking about spiritual enablements, special giftings that the Holy Spirit gives us as Christians and gives each Christian. Some may have the gift of teaching. Some may have the gift of service. Some may have the gift of administration or the gift of mercy or things like that. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about these specific spiritual gifts. He's talking about something more basic, more general. He wants to be with them so that he can assess their spiritual condition and help bring them to greater maturity. For he says in the same sentence that the ultimate purpose for seeing them and giving them this spiritual gift is that they may be established and strengthened. Paul's not even sure what it is that they need yet. Because he's not on scene yet. He wants to get on scene so he can see the situation, speak into it, and have the result be that the church is strengthened by it. Now look at verse 12. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is not correcting himself here from what he's just said in verse 11. He goes, uh, in verse 11, he says, look, I can't wait to be with you. I long to impart some spiritual gift to you. And then verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you. He's not just correcting himself. He is rather making himself more clear he's expanding upon and clarifying what he actually wants to see happen by visiting them. By visiting them in person, Paul wants to both give and receive encouragement. Paul understands that these Roman Christians need him and that he needs them. Paul understands that they will benefit from his coming and that he, the great apostle, will benefit from being with them. You see, beloved, there is great value in our gathering together. We make all kinds of accommodations to folks. There are seasons in life when people can't come to church. They can't be physically present. They have an illness or they have a loved one with an illness or things like that. And we have, in our technological age, we have all kinds of abilities and ways that you can tune into church without actually being here. Well, you might be watching church, but you are not having church. Because to have church, you got to be present. you got to be here. you got to be with us. Paul understood the value of that. He understood that this couldn't be done remotely, that really the fullness of ministry can't be experienced through a pen pal relationship. There is a face-to-face nature of discipleship that is absolutely essential to Christian growth, Christian maturity, and Christian health. And there's no replacement for it. Paul understood that. And he's he's underscoring that here. Paul understands they will benefit from His coming and He will benefit from being with them. He states explicitly here that they will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. The word translated encouraged here is the same word Jesus used to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo, which literally means to be called alongside with the idea of being called alongside for the purpose of helping, of encouraging, of strengthening, of comforting. Paul knows that a personal visit from him will result in their being called alongside each other with the result of being mutually encouraged, mutually comforted, and mutually strengthened. And what will bring this mutual encouragement and comfort and strengthening? Each other's faith. Each other's faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith has an effect on the body of Christ. Your presence with your faith has a positive impact upon the maturity of the body of christ the great apostle paul acknowledged that he would greatly benefit from being with other christians being encouraged and comforted by their faith if that is true for him an apostle who has all the gifts all the intellect all the training Chosen by Christ himself, trained by Christ himself, and yet the Apostle Paul recognizes, acknowledges his own need to be in the presence of other believers. How much more so you and I. There are no long-ranger Christians. That's not God's design. We need each other. You know how encouraged I am? when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ going through a time of crisis, a trial, a difficulty, a hardship, and yes, expressing the full range of emotions, of of sorrow, and even at times anger, and bewilderment at those things, and yet maintaining a firm faith in Jesus Christ through it all. Do you know what an encouragement that is for me? you know what a great example that is for me? Do you know what a great sermon that is for me to receive from you? And I've received it time and time again in this church through the years. To see loved ones walking alongside a dying spouse, trusting God, not understanding, but trusting. Showing faith. In the face of unthinkable circumstances. Showing faith at a graveside. Showing faith with a diagnosis. Showing faith at a job loss. Showing faith with a broken relationship. Faith in God. Faith that God is at work. Faith that God is able. Faith that nothing is impossible. Faith that indeed God has ordained these things for my good, for His glory. Beloved, we need one another. Our faith helps to establish each other, and it has a collective effect. And that can't be done online, that can't be done through writing letters or emails. It happens best face to face. We need to both give and receive gospel encouragements. Ask yourself these questions this morning. Is my faith a source of encouragement to others? Is my faith helping to build up the faith of others as I respond to the circumstances of life? As I look to an unknown, uncertain future? Is my faith encouraging and building up the brothers and sisters who know me? Is my faith helping to build the faith of others? Likewise, am I living closely enough with other Christians? For them to see how I respond to life's challenges and difficulties with faith. Am I known? Does anyone know me? Have I given them opportunity to know me? Or do I show up late and leave early? If I show up at all. Do I realize that I need this and that this will help me to grow in my faith to be closely related to other believers so that I may observe their life and their faith and be encouraged and comforted and strengthened by it and so that in turn they can see mine and be encouraged and comforted and strengthened by it? What steps can I take to live more closely alongside my brothers and sisters in Christ if I'm not already doing so? The Apostle Paul needed this in his life. Are you better than he? Thirdly, a third mark of a gospel-centered, healthy church is a place where gospel preaching is prized and practiced. Verses 13 through 15. Paul states in verse 13 that he wants them to know how many times he's planned to come before now but has been prevented by God's providence from doing so. He wanted to come. He made plans to come. Why? So that he might obtain some fruit among them. He wanted to be part of a harvest. He wanted to be part of what God was doing in Rome. And see some fruit come from it. Just as he had seen the fruit of a harvest that God had done in so many other places around the Roman Empire as Paul traveled about and preached the gospel. Paul had been everywhere, man. He'd been to Ephesus and Lystra and Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Antioch. You could make a song out of it if you were so creative. But everywhere he went, he preached the gospel. His method was the same. He'd say, oh, I'm going to do it differently here Uh, in Athens, you know, because these are the these are the you know the smart folks. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel, and it was the same gospel. Romans fifteen nine. Paul says, From Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, from Jerusalem eastward to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, is a span of about 1,400 miles. That is a long way without an airplane or a car. But Paul did it, and everywhere he went, he preached. And in all these places, he preached primarily to the Gentiles, since God had called him largely to a ministry of preaching the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul calls himself, indeed, an apostle to the Gentiles in Romans eleven thirteen. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 26 real quickly. I just want you to see Paul's own words of, about his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ and how he was called of God to be an apostle, yes, but commissioned especially unto the Gentiles. All right, so look with me at Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 9. Paul is retelling his testimony to King Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 9, Paul says, So then I thought to myself, he's talking about his life before Christ here, when he was a persecutor of the church. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Yeah, kill them. Kill them good. That was Paul's attitude. Verse 11, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up. Stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, "...to whom I am sending you, the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision." But I kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. The Apostle Paul was called as an apostle and commissioned unto the Gentiles. So it was Jesus who issued this commissioning and this calling. And Paul wanted to go to Rome to see God reap a harvest of rich fruit among the Romans through his preaching, just as the Lord had done in other cities. This harvest would come through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel which produces the dual spiritual fruits of both evangelism and discipleship. One message preached produces a harvest of two kinds of fruit. The fruit of evangelism, of unbelievers coming to faith in Christ initially, and the fruit of discipleship, of believers growing in their faith as they hear the gospel preached. Now look at verse 14. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. As an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul describes himself here as a debtor. He has an unpaid obligation to preach to all the Gentiles. An obligation to God and an obligation to these Gentiles. He wants to preach both to Greeks and to barbarians. Greeks refers to the sophisticated in-group, the cultured class, those who spoke the Greek language. These were those who were considered the philosophers and the refined ones. But he's also indebted to the barbarians, which is a word that refers to all non-Greek speakers. It's a pejorative. It's an onomatopoetic word coined by the Greeks because it sounds like what their refined ears hear when other people speak languages other than Greek. Sounds crude. Sounds stupid. Sounds like they're dumb. Bar, 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 bar. Barbarians, unrefined, uncouth, unlearned. But Paul says, I'm under obligation to them too. I owe them a debt too. I owe them the preaching of the gospel, for God has put it on me to do so. Woe unto me as if I do not preach the gospel. Likewise, Paul is under obligation to preach the gospel to wise and foolish, to the learned and the unlearned, to the highest person in society, to the lowliest person in the gutter. You see, God intends in His mercy for the gospel to go to all people, regardless of nationality, language, or social status, regardless of background, regardless of history. And the gospel is able to reach into every person's life and radically change them forever. And the Apostle Paul serves as exhibit A of the truth of the power of the gospel to transform a life. He went from chief persecutor of the church to chief proclaimer of the gospel. Romans 1.16 Paul talks about the power of the gospel to change a life. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of the gospel to save and to change. Given that Paul is under obligation to preach the gospel to all people, look what he says in verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to them, to be present among them and preach the glorious truth of the gospel, which at once brings forth the fruit and the harvest of unbelievers coming to faith in Christ and of believers growing in faith in Christ. Why was Paul eager to preach the gospel? Because he knew that gospel preaching, biblical preaching, is the key to spiritual formation of a community a church that is why he told Timothy I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in kingdom preach the word preach the word Timothy Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. How would Timothy fulfill his ministry? By preaching the word. By staying steady at the task of preaching the gospel in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. Because this is God's divine means for bringing about and birthing new believers and growing established believers. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. How is every man presented complete in Christ? How is every person brought to maturity in Christ? It is through the proclamation of Christ and His gospel. The preaching of the Word of God, the proclamation of Christ, and his gospel are God's chief means of growing and maturing the body of Christ. Gospel preaching does not just benefit the unbeliever and those who are brand new to the faith, but it blesses and benefits the most mature among us. And therefore, Paul was eager to be on site with the Romans to preach the gospel because he knew that the gospel preached would result in a rich harvest of, of both evangelism and discipleship. Preaching. Biblical preaching. Gospel preaching is sometimes looked down upon today. You'll sometimes hear things like this. Preaching isn't the best form of communication. Actually, preaching isn't the best form of communication. Dialogue is better. Conversation is more effective. You see, people today, they don't have the attention spans like people used to. They're not able to listen to preaching. But what all of these arguments fail to take into account is the fact that God has both ordained and promised to bless the preaching of His gospel. Those who look down on biblical preaching fail to take into account that it is the Spirit of God who is powerfully at work in the preaching of the Word of God. Powerfully at work calling men and women, boys and girls, out of darkness and into light. The preaching of the gospel causes the dry bones of the spiritually lifeless to rise up and live again. The preaching of the gospel gives life and light and hope in the midst of a world that is full of death and darkness and despair. Churches that prize and practice the preaching of the gospel will find themselves growing in health and maturity because the church is not our church. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church. And the Lord has has spoken and given us the means of growing His church both through new conversions and through discipleship. And it's through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is God's primary means for making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Churches and individuals that downplay the role of preaching or despise the preaching of the gospel will find themselves sooner or later drifting into lifelessness and ultimately apostasy. These then are some of the marks of a healthy gospel-centered church where there is a gospel gratitude for God's work in the lives of others, where there are gospel encouragements both given and received, and where gospel preaching is both prized and practiced. May the Lord make these marks increasingly present among our body for the sake of His gospel and for the glory of His name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need to hear the gospel preached, declared, heralded, for it is good news. It's good news for the unbeliever, and it's good news for the believer. It's good news that brings those who are dead in their sins to life through the power of Your Spirit, working in them through faith, And it is good news that brings about the maturity and growth in the individual and the body as a whole. Father, I pray that you would increasingly make these marks true of us. That we would be a people filled with gratitude for one another. Even those we have difficulties with. Even those with whom we disagree that we can find something to be grateful for and thankful for. Otherwise, we are denying the good gift that you have given us in them. Lord, I pray that you would make us increasingly a people who are marked by prizing and practicing the word preached by placing ourselves regularly and faithfully under the preaching of your word, by prizing it, by listening carefully, by seeking to obey what we hear. And may you increasingly make us a people that both give and receive encouragement through our faith, our common faith in you, Father, who have given us the best gift of all in your Son. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.